passage in Hebrews chapter 6 is one that I am sure everyone is familiar with, and I'm also sure that everyone might not be terribly happy about it. Verses 4 through 6, well-known passage with which many have, have struggled. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Let us pray. Our Father, we seek to understand more of the meaning and the mystery and the power of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that death, of course, his indispensable resurrection. And our death in him through baptism. And our rising again to walk in newness of life and the promise of our own bodily resurrection in the day in which the Lord Jesus returns. All of these things, Father, are a mystery, and yet they are there in your word. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us light, enlighten your scriptures to our understanding, and our souls to your obedience. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this passage is a difficult one for many. Uh, there are those who believe that this passage proves that a Christian can lose his or her salvation. Uh, we have had occasion to talk about this passage many times over the years, and unfortunately this evening the, the focus of the passage is not on whether or not you can lose your salvation. But I will say this by way of, of, a, of a very brief summary of, of my teaching and counseling over the years concerning this passage, and that is if you think that it applies to you, it probably doesn't. If you're worried at all about your, stat, your standing in the Lord from this passage, then you are probably just fine. What I want to bring out of this passage in keeping with our topic regarding the death of Christ is what the author says in verse 6, that those who are characterized by verses 4 and 5 and have fallen away, the author says it impossible again to renew them to salvation or repentance, for they again crucify to themselves the Son of God. Now, clearly, this is no small offense in the eyes of God. To crucify to oneself the Son of God. And so I think it, it is worth our attempting to understand what this means. What, what is it that people do that results in them crucifying to themselves the Son of God? Those who teach that this passage proves that one can lose their salvation also teach that one can gain it back again. I call it yo-yo soteriology. No, up and down, in and out. But look at verse 6 again. It says it is impossible to renew them to repentance. So if in fact this does teach, which I do not believe that it does, that a Christian can lose his or her salvation, then it also teaches that that loss is permanent and irrevocable. 
It is impossible. So there's something that happens inside the soul of a man when he crucifies again to himself the Son of God. When he does that, he renders himself somehow beyond repentance. Someone like Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. The Bible says that he sought for repentance but could not find it. And most theologians and commentators would say he could not find it because it was not in him. Okay, so what does it mean to crucify to oneself the Son of God? A little bit later in Hebrews chapter 10, the author says, in talking about the holiness of God and the judgment that God will mete out upon the ungodly, he says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? It seems to me from passages like this and really all through the Scripture when we read God's jealousy concerning even the death of the sacrifices on the altar under the Old Covenant, it seems to me that God takes this matter seriously. The matter of the, son, the death of His Son. And so He takes seriously how one views the death and the blood of Christ. Again, this series loosely follows the treatise by John Owen, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And one thing that pervades that treatise is a seriousness, a sobriety, a taking serious the death and the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I think we would do well to follow John Owen in that, follow the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, follow the apostles, follow God. in taking seriously our thoughts concerning the death of Christ and so tonight I want to touch upon four errors. Views that are prevalent, some closer to home than others with regard to uh, us as evangelicals, but still errors that have been in the church and are continuing in the church. Errors concerning the death of Christ and what it means and the mystery and the power contained within that blood that was shed on Golgotha. I again want to issue the caveat that by saying that I believe these to be errors, I do not necessarily mean to say that they are heresies or that those who hold these views are outside the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We talked even this morning in Sunday school about the fine line between saying something is wrong and saying something is heretical. And those of you who have attended our Thursday evening studies know that that's something we, we touch upon quite frequently. It's one thing to say that I believe you're wrong. And it's another to say I believe you're a heretic. It's one thing to say I believe you're in error. And it's another to say that I believe you are apostate. And I think we understand that one is within the family of God and the other is between believers and unbelievers. Now, having said that, at least one of these views I do believe to be in grave error. I believe it to be a false gospel. But the first one I want to touch upon is the one that I think many of you are familiar with and, and modern evangelicals 
hold it very dear to their heart. And that is C.S. Lewis's Aslan. We're all those of us who have read the Chronicles of Narnia, and I've had the opportunity to read them to my children and to my grandchildren. I hope someday to read them to my great-grandchildren. I think they're wonderful books. But I do think it is necessary to say that C.S. Lewis's writings have been co-opted into modern evangelism. And there are many people who believe, particularly the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, is the gospel. But I want to ask, is it really the gospel? I don't believe that C.S. Lewis intended for it to be the gospel. And I do believe that C.S. Lewis, along with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, have been given a disproportionate influence in the modern church when one studies their theology. One would understand that neither man was reformed, one of which was not very orthodox at all in many of his fundamental doctrines. I'll give you a hint. I'm not talking about Lewis. We need to be careful, as we're, we're told in Scripture, how we listen. We need to be careful what we listen to, and then we need to be very careful what we do with what we listen to. Did C.S. Lewis intend the lion and the witch in the wardrobe to be the gospel? Well, I think most readers will agree, I think it's somewhat obvious, that Aslan is a Christ figure. But for whom did Aslan die? That's really the question that John Owen is putting to us in his massive treatise with regard to Christ, is the question that we're going to be asking throughout this series, for whom did Christ die? Well, for whom did Aslan die? He died for Edmund. Because Edmund was a traitor who had betrayed his brother and his sisters. He had gone over to the white witch's side. And for that, someone had to die, either Edmund or Aslan. So Aslan died for Edmund. But we have no indication in the entire story that he also died for Peter, for Susan, for Lucy. But were they not also sinners? Now don't get me wrong, I love the story. I choke up and tear up every time I read the last scenes. I think Lewis was a great writer and a brilliant mind. But he himself admitted he was no theologian. And we should not make out of a man what he admits himself not to be. And this is a minor error perhaps, very benign. Unless, of course, we attempt to make the lion and the witch and the wardrobe into the gospel. And what we come up with is a Christ who dies for those who are really bad. You know, who, who do things that we recognize are treacherous and really unforgivable. But that's not the gospel, is it? The gospel is we have all fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one, right? All our righteousness are as filthy rags. That, that's the gospel. And I do believe from his other writings, and C.S. Lewis fully agreed with that. 
that men, all men, are lost in their sins. Not just Edmund. That, that was a story, and, and a beautiful story, but not the gospel. And we need to be careful that we do not make into the gospel something because it is sentimental, something because it moves us, something because it makes us feel the love of God through the character Aslan. Paul says in Romans, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we who? We Edmund? No, we Edmund, we Peter, we Susan, we Lucy, we all. That sounded very southern, didn't it? We all. <laughs> while we were all yet sinners, Christ died for us. Closer or more familiar as far as an error. And I imagine you think, well, now that's kind of splitting hairs. And, and I have been asked in, the, in, in ages past, why don't you leave well enough alone, live and let live? You know, why, why pick on the lion and the witch in the wardrobe? Well, only because I do know in the modern church and, and here very locally as well as elsewhere that that story is, is being presented as the gospel. And, and what Paul says in Galatians 9, or 1 verse 9, is kind of governing all of this. If any man or angel should come to you with a different gospel, Paul says, let him be accursed. Now, I'm not going that far, because I think it's an error of, of sincerity, an error of judgment, an error, unfortunately, as we'll see toward the end of this evening, an error that is born out of a faulty theology. And just as Tim was teaching this morning that our theology will impact our theory of the church, it's also true that our theology will impact our understanding and our propagation of the gospel. But a more familiar error to evangelicals is that of Rome. The Roman Catholic Church and its teaching on the death of Christ. Although I would say many evangelicals could not articulate Rome's doctrine, many of us would not be able to, to say, if we encountered a Roman Catholic, exactly what it is their church teaches. But that's okay, because that Roman Catholic doesn't know either. No, it's not okay. We ought to know. We ought to understand the error of such a large and influential church and be able to speak the truth. To the question, for whom did Christ die? Rome answers, that's not the right question. It's not for whom did Christ die, but for what? Christ died for the church. Now, of course, this means the Roman Catholic Church. Now with this, they're not beyond biblical support because in Ephesians chapter 5, we read that famous phrase, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Rome looks at a verse like this, as well as many other things we know, and says, Christ did not die but for the church, his bride. And the salvation that any individual experiences through the death of Christ and the blood of Christ 
is indirectly, it is mediated through the church. Outside the church there is no salvation, teaches Rome. And all of the grace that God has bestowed through Christ, he has bestowed to the church to be administered by the priesthood to the people. And so the idea of personal justification, which was a rallying cry of Luther during the Reformation, is not understood within the Roman Catholic Church any more than our concept of human rights here in the United States is understood by the people of China. We have a, a different mindset between Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholicism on one of the most fundamental tenets of our faith, and that is, how then must we be saved? Rome teaches that one is saved through the sacraments of the church. And the most important sacrament within the Roman Catholic Church, by their own admission, is the Eucharist the Mass. And it is quite significant and quite remarkable what Rome teaches concerning the Mass. We just read from Hebrews chapter 10 what severe punishment one will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. The Roman Catholic Church will not administer the wine to the laity in many of its congregations for fear that it might spill and become trampled underfoot or devoured by rats. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the bread of communion becomes literally the body of Jesus Christ. The wine of communion becomes literally the blood of Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church who apparently are very careful not to spill the blood of Christ so that it might not be literally trampled underfoot, spiritually crucify Christ again and again and again every day, morning and evening, somewhere around the world. Mass is celebrated on the hour and Rome teaches that this is a continual sacrifice of Christ. They do call it a bloodless one. But it is a continuation of that which we read was once for all. The death of Jesus Christ. Rome claims that this is exactly what is done. Crucifying Christ and must be done. If salvation is to continue in the church. I want to read a small paragraph from the Constitution of the Church of Vatican II. And as I have occasionally read from Catholic documents, I want again to point out, because it has been some time, that if you are ever studying Roman Catholicism, and you have in your hand a book, and you wonder whether or not this is official church doctrine, where we have, where we usually find the copyright information, there will be two other notations if, in fact, the teachings of the book are the teachings of the church. The first is the nihil obstat, 
which basically means there are no errors, nothing in the way of a person's faith. And the other is the imprimatur, which is the stamp of approval, saying this is USDA grade A choice Roman teaching. If anything you're reading does not have those two notations inside the front, then you're reading the opinions of a Roman Catholic. You are not necessarily reading the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. This book has both. Here, the position of the Church, as recently as the last ecumenical council, Vatican II in the 1960s. As often as the sacrifice of the cross in which Christ our Passover was sacrificed is celebrated on the altar, the work of our redemption is carried on. As often as the sacrifice of the cross, in other words, and in the context, the Mass, is carried on, so also is the work of our redemption. The once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ is repeated continually by the Roman Catholic Church, so that the salvation that comes and results from that death is continually flowing into the church, and from the church is mediated to the faithful through the priesthood. I would submit to you that this entire system, especially the Eucharist, the Mass, is a masterpiece of satanic deception. The Roman Catholic Church and its teachings concerning salvation and Jesus Christ's death is one of the devil's greatest works of subtlety and deception that he has ever perpetrated. In most Baptist churches, you can say something against Rome and you're likely to get an amen somewhere. But if you say anything against Dallas, you're going to get in trouble. And by Dallas, I mean the Dallas Theological Seminary, which has long been the headquarters of the teaching called dispensationalism. And so it's, it's okay in, in many Protestant denominations, Baptists, um, Congregationalists, others, to speak against Rome. But there are other places where you, you better not touch and within most American Baptists, that would have to do with the teaching called dispensationalism. But that is my third error to bring out this evening. What does the dispensationalist answer when we ask him, for whom did Christ die? Well, like Rome, Dallas changes the question and renders it rather did Christ even have to die? Because the teaching of dispensationalism has as one of its fundamental principles that if Israel had accepted Jesus as her Messiah, Jesus would not have died. He would have rather established the Davidic kingdom and set up the millennial reign right then and there in Jerusalem. So rather than answer the question, for whom did Christ die, they, they pose the question, well, did he need to die at all? Was not his death a great mistake? Israel, rejecting her Messiah, 
putting him to death. And God thereby, I don't mean to say this blasphemously at all, but it is the opinion or the impression I get from much of dispensationalist teaching, God thereby scrambling to come up with a way to redeem, pardon the pun, this situation. And coming up with this brilliant plan called the church. This parentheses in which we live, this age of grace, whereby Gentiles are saved through faith, not through the law. Waiting, of course, for the time of the millennial kingdom when Jesus will return and set up his royal throne in Jerusalem. Dwight Pentecost is a well-known dispensationalist writer, and he has summarized dispensational teaching just as I have just now said it. But in his book, he added something quite shocking. If Israel had accepted Jesus as her Messiah, Jesus would not have died. And Dr. Pentecost goes on to say, God would have come up with another way of saving Gentiles. You see, dispensationalism is not just about the end times. Dispensationalism is a system of theology. It is also a system that is destructive of biblical soteriology, the biblical doctrine of salvation. Because in classical dispensationalism, salvation is not by grace through faith at all times, but has been under different mechanisms in different dispensations. But more in keeping with our topic, dispensationalism thoroughly misunderstands the meaning of the death of Christ by questioning whether or not it was even necessary. And by positing the theory, or at least the hypothesis, that if Israel had accepted Jesus as their promised Messiah, Jesus would not have needed to die but would rather have established the kingdom of his father David without the cross. I once believed that Reformed theology could coexist with dispensationalism. I do know there is a gentleman on the left coast who still believes that. A very famous teacher who somehow combines Reformed theology with dispensationalism. I also once believed at one time long ago that biblical theology could coexist with evolution. Well, now I know I've been wrong at least twice. Because I do not believe that dispensationalism can coexist with Reformed theology. And if it is believed in its thoroughness, and I will grant that there are dispensationalists who apply it only to the end times, but in their soteriology, in their doctrine of the church, and all other things, they are quite sound and solid. They have a disconnect between the two, and somehow they maintain that disconnect within their mind. But those who hold it consistently, I believe, hold to a false gospel, not the true one. That brings us to the fourth error, and one in which I am not going to go into great detail, because this is the error against which John Owen writes in his treatise, it is the error that is most prevalent in modern American 
evangelicalism. And so it is the error that we're going to be looking at and comparing scriptural teaching against from here on out in this series. And that, of course, is Arminianism. Arminianism is the theology that undergirds dispensationalism and its cousin called semi-Pelagianism is the theology that undergirds the doctrine of Rome. And in a nutshell, it is this idea that man cooperates in his own salvation. And the teaching of Arminianism is that God, in the death of his son Jesus Christ, provided a way of salvation for any who would believe. You've often heard the analogy that, that God has, has built that bridge to within one step of the other side, of your side, that bridge to heaven. All you need to do is take that last step, that step of faith, and you will be saved. God has done all that he can do through the blood of Jesus Christ. But you must do the rest which I think logically, inescapably, means that the ultimate, the ultimate and final cause of any person's salvation is himself. Is that not reasonable? It is himself and not God. So for whom did Christ die, we asked the Arminian. And as I said, the answer will occupy the rest of our study. So I hope you'll forgive us not going into great detail this evening. But the answer of the Arminian, in a nutshell, is that Jesus died for each and every individual sinner and for no one in particular. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep. Let us pray. Father, we do wish to understand the majesty and the mystery of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not simply so that we can argue with those who disagree, but rather that we can experience the power of that death. That we can understand ourselves by grace through faith as being encompassed within that death and all of its benefits. And that we might better walk in that newness of life that we have been promised and that we have been given through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I ask that you would train our minds to hear your word. And again, that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate your word to our understanding and illuminate our souls to obedience to that word. We ask your blessing upon our coming week that we would walk in your ways and by your light. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand this evening for the benediction from 2 Thessalonians. <clears throat> Chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort, and good hope by grace. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word.
Amen.